0: Alan chooses is a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered. His newest book is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Thank you for inviting me, Rick. Alan, this book is very, very unusual, and I just love the heck out of it. Uh, let's talk about the beginning, because you really begin at the beginning. And it seems kind of audacious. I mean, when you started this book, and you started writing this book like 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, Did you envision it having such a wide scope? Uh,
1: No, frankly, no. Um, I I didn't know how far and wide I was going to have to range in order to finish it, to make it work. But uh, I was perfectly willing to go as far as I go in this opening, which is about 35,000 years B.C., Um, why don't
0: you read us from okay. the opening?
1: Let I, read I the really opening. like that. It's a beautiful piece of prose. Just one page. Here's the the first page. An eruption, the stone. The shock wave jarred them from sleep and sent them stumbling to their feet. Next came the roar of exploding earth and a sky in flames. From that maelstrom in the heavens, did a voice call out to them Go, hurry? The three of them, the man first, the woman following slightly behind, the child trailing off to one side, hurried away across the steaming plain, making their first marks, footprints, in the yielding layer of ash. Light shifted behind the veil of smoking sky. The rumbling went on and on. The man shouted at the gathering mist, coughing as he breathed. The girl slowed up, listed toward the plain, reached down and plucked at the ash. They walked, they walked, Light turned over, revealing a blue sky streaked with a long tail of smoke and ash. The girl pulled away from her mother, clutching something in her hand. This stone, relatively cool to the touch, born of an earlier eruption, this small, egg-shaped stone, black, bluish, purple, mahogany, cocoa, dark fire within, three horizontal lines, one vertical, the same pattern carved into your high cheeks. Take it and hold it to your lips." Taste earth and sky, the inside of a mouth, the lining of a birth canal, the faintest fleck of something darker even than the blackness through which it has passed. You have now kissed wherever this stone has been, and it has traveled far. Um, so that, that is my uh, It's like an
0: invocation. Take, well, uh, And I think it really works that way. It brings good, us into the good, world. It's good. like a prayer in some ways. Well, I guess you could call it that. Um, it, it,
1: it's my response to the photograph of the, that leaky dig where we see the footprints of this family, a man, a, a woman, and a child, uh, in the ash of, uh, in the wake of this exploding volcano on the, the plain in northern Kenya uh, around 35,000 B.C., And that's the trail that I try
0: to pick up in the rest of the novel. Now, um, this book didn't start out that way, though. You had a very different start for this book.
1: I don't know how much I want to give away here, but uh, it started out with my uh, questions I had about uh, Jewish involvement in the slave trade. I had read uh, some wild accusations by uh, some black nationalists that, oh, ranging from uh, you know the Jews bankrolled the transatlantic slave trade, through uh, you know they were the largest uh, slaveholders in the United States, and uh, which, which was great black nationalist propaganda, turned out. as as a lot of propaganda does, it had a tiny sliver of truth in it, which they built on. Uh, What I discovered was, uh, by reading some uh, almost half-dozen historical accounts of Jewish involvement in in the slave trade, uh, there were about 100 families in Charleston in in, uh, early 19th century uh, South Carolina, and about four of them owned plantations. So um, 4% of the Jewish population in Charleston, I, I think that so that's a larger percentage than the white population. I mean, you know, of the mil- multi millions in America, maybe one percent held slaves, but um, so there's a slightly larger percentage of Jews own slaves than than um, uh, Anglo-Saxon Americans. But in any case, um, I as I read the histories, I began to try to imagine the life and. Uh, Uh, and I imagine this uh, son of a a New York uh, import-export man, uh, a Jewish family, coming down to Charleston at his father's behest to look into the possibility of uh, buying into uh, the uncle's uh, plantation, rice plantation, which was about 1,000 acres and 100 slaves. Now, um,
0: I'd like you to just Tell me a little bit, uh, I, and I apologize for not really knowing. Uh, are, are you're from Russian Jews? Is that correct?
1: On my father's side. On yes. your
0: father's side. Are you practicing? No, no. So I, I want tell us a little bit about your perception of your Jewish heritage and your perception of how that fit into your creating these characters.
1: Uh, well you know it's part part of my uh, legend as it were <laughs> as the spies would say um i i knew a lot about it because you know i went through the kind of conventional uh, jewish upbringing uh more uh you know more in lip service than in practice uh, my my family was not uh, practicing except at, on on the high holy days uh, you know, which is the counterpart of the Christians who go to church on Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I knew the lore and I knew the uh, training. And uh, so if somebody says to you that your extended family was involved in a, some kind of horrible uh, institution, you want to look into it.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Now, um, I really love The Voice. This is a novel of voices for me. And I love the voice of Daniel Pereira because, he Nathaniel, Pereira. Nathaniel yeah. Pereira, Pereira, because he's somewhat self-important and mm-hmm. wordy, a- mm-hmm. and you you uh, create a guy who's like talks a little bit too much, mm-hmm. and I really love that kind of risk you take as a writer mm-hmm. uh, of doing that. So, well, I he's a r-
1: young romantic guy; uh-huh. uh, his head's filled with poetry and. Uh, He has illusions about his life, and uh, he wants to go on the grand tour. He wants his father to send him to to Europe to complete his education, but instead his father sends him down to Charleston to investigate the possibility of buying into this uh, rice plantation. So he's he's kind of irritated by that, Um, and it's that irritation that generates, I think, a lot of the meandering in his own mind and uh, leads him into... uh, A situation he never could have imagined before he uh, took the boat down to Charleston.
0: Uh, I'd like you to talk about just creating that prose style because it Mm -hmm. seems like um, it must have been a fun, it's really fun to read. Mm -hmm. It's a joy to read and it's Mm -hmm. very, um, for a guy who kind of talks himself around a lot, it's really a a kind of page-turning prose. We really want to find out what he has to say Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and it must have been fun for you to write and did you stumble into that voice? Did you re-keep approaching the character? I mean, how long did you live with this guy before you sat down to write his Charles? Well, channels?
1: some years, but, I mean... When, some years? <laughs> when he started writing and talking, I mean, I knew how I wanted him to sound, mm-hmm. which was, uh, you know, he, he kind of writes himself as the, the hero of a kind of slightly bad uh, romantic novel of the period. <laughs> So the question is, um, and I have to say, more reviewers than not did not say this. But you know, one reviewer said, "Oh, this is terrible prose." Uh, but the, you know, the the trick is to make it sound real, but not make you think it's terrible.
0: It's brilliant. It's totally readable. I really enjoyed it, and I Good. think that once you, I mean, it's he's very engaging, mm-hmm. and one of the things you do very well. Is play with the reader's knowledge of the period, yes. and the and give us. It's one of those situations where we know a little bit more about things mm-hmm. than he did, and yes. and yeah. that and that lends it a, a lot of reading pleasure. And I'm wondering, um, you know, you're a guy who reads and reads a lot of books, and I think that's part of what plays into your skills and strengths as a writer is that. You have an understanding of how people who sit down and really read and take in books to read for pleasure, why they do that. Well,
1: I I, I hope that's true. Uh, In Nathaniel's case, you realize that, you know, when you get to a certain point in the novel, you realize that, well, you know, he's been he's writing this down as as recollection, and at a certain point, uh, you know, he goes in the Civil War Mm -hmm. and doesn't come out. The other side, so and and his uh, his prose, his pages are are left for someone else to pick up and and uh, and complete.
0: Now, uh, as it, the plotting of this book is really clever too, because we have Daniel's story, but then we have these other parts, and and the this invocation and kind of prayer you read to us mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. the beginning is this other thread, and these are written in a very different tone, and a very different voice, and they tell a very different story. Mm -hmm. So what made you realize that you needed, and you really do need to, as we read the novel, you really do need to tell that story. What made you realize that? When did you realize, how far were you into Daniel's story, or Nathaniel's story, when you realized that uh, you had to tell this other story?
1: Well, I wrote all of Nathaniel's narrative and then realized it wasn't complete. Mm. Uh, and then I, I then wrote the second narrative strand, and I realized that wasn't complete. And then I had to uh, work my way towards the end of the story and find someone who could put it all together, or invent someone who could put it all together. Boy, that just—it's that's
0: so interesting because it's uh, as readers. It's like trying to build a house from the attic down. Right? <laughs> well. well one of first, the we'll put up the roof.
1: <laughs> then we'll put up the first floor.
0: Well, you know, I, I guess that goes to our experience as readers, too. And and I think that's one of the things that makes it such a pleasure to read is that um, as we're putting together, you know, enjoying Nathaniel's story and enjoying this, these interstitial stories, and I will talk a little bit more about those— um, Trying to figure out how we're hearing this, why we're hearing mm-hmm. this, and where we're leading it really lends uh, a lot of narrative or urgency to the story. And, and was this something? This sounds like something you had to like. Uh, you had all the pe- you put all the pieces of the puzzle, and then you had to figure out what the heck the picture was.
1: Yeah, and, I, and when I look back on it, I realize that uh, you know I wasn't going to write a, a naturalistic narrative about the received truth of of, of uh, slavery and the certain northerners' responses to it, um, I had to uh, invent an evolving truth as the story unfolded so that the truth of the story was true to the way in which we understand things in the world. Uh, You know, I could leave it to the historians to write something and say, well, this is as close to the truth as we're going to get. And it's not alive. It's, It's factual, but it's not alive, whereas the novel was seems to me the only really uh, imitation of life, as, as Aristotle would talk about it if he had read novels. Um, you know, this is life as we perceive it, as we understand it, and, and truth is something alive and grows on us and grows with us as, as we read. So the, the horrors of the slave trade and the horrors of slavery uh, Pache, Michelle Bachman, and Rick Santorum, who recently signed that, uh, that pledge that said, well, s- slavery wasn't all that bad because it kept the black family together. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, the horrors of slavery...
0: Are never that far from us. Are,
1: are, you know, the horrors of slavery exist in our lives and in our imaginations today. The, 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 the facts of slavery come to life as we think about it. And, you know, in the case of people who are descended from slaves, it's in their DNA. It's on their skin. Um, as for those of us who are descended from people who kept slaves or might have kept slaves or who watched the institution evolve, it's there in our imaginations, and, we, and we've and we got to um, understand it as something that evolves, something that we're thinking about all the time, something that's there in our daily lives every day. Um,
0: and in different forms too. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, <clears throat> slavery today in the world that doesn't, might not look like slavery, but in a lot different from what happened back then.
1: The uh, you know Faulkner says the past is never past; it's always present. And I think, and he called slavery the curse on America, and it's and it's with us today. Um, that Faulkner quote
0: needs to be up on billboards. Yeah, I
1: I, I think. Um, Maybe we could put it on a coin or a bill. I mean, but I have this campaign, you know, to change the national anthem from our current national anthem to uh,
0: the the. You mean the British beer drinking song? <laughs>
1: to, to uh, uh, Bob Dylan's uh, astonishing blues, Blind Willie McTell, that has that uh, that chorus, uh, that stands. Let's see if I can remember it. S- uh, Smell the big. See the big plantations burning, hear the cracking of the whips, smell the sweet magnolia blooming, see the ghosts of slavery ships. I hear the tolling of the undertaker's bell. I know no one can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell. I think be, that's our na- or should
0: be our national anthem. You have a, a the second thread. And it seems like it must have required a lot of research and a lot of imagination. And for me, in many ways, it read like a a strand out of a particularly literary and well written epic fantasy, because you have a a generational story. And that Mm -hmm. enables you, that puts different demands on the readers and on you as a writer. Mm -hmm to keep characters that will remember across, literally, across generations. We're reaching back 35,000 years. That's a quite some family tree you had to create.
1: Yes. Um, well, I just tried to build it in a, in a reasonably credible way uh, so that we could see the story of this family trying to um, make itself free over many, many, many generations. I mean, when we first see them fleeing... Uh, Slaveholders, they're Muslim slaveholders, and then they be, they're caught by African slave traders, and uh, spend some generations in in uh, the the jungle south of Mali, and eventually captured again by slave traders and sold uh, into bondage to English slave traders, and then shipped to America, where they're bought by these uh, Jewish plantation owners. So it, it, it's um, a various. An interesting family who were owned by uh, various and despicable
0: slave traders. The presence of slavery in so many cultures, in so many situations, throughout history is one I think of the uh, really interesting aspects of this book that you know m- makes us think. We when we hear the word slavery, I mean, there's, our brains just go straight to you know pre-Civil War America. Yeah, you know, but there's a lot more to it than that. Greeks
1: I mean. owned slaves. Athens was, you know, 400 Athenians were tended to by almost 10,000 slaves. Uh, the Romans obviously owned slaves. Uh, and and we don't pay too much attention to that because they are supposedly our civilized forebears. But uh, they weren't all that civilized in that they held these slaves. But it, it, the historical event that made me recognize how horrifying this practice is. It was the, uh, you know, the, the rise of Nazism, so that um, you know, the Nazis owned people and basically threw them away like trash. The sl- American slaveholders used people, made them work for nothing. So it seems to me they're part and parcel
0: of the same, uh, same continuum. That's uh that's an interesting perception and something that would raise a lot of hackles. And I'm you know, when you weighed into this this subject, um did you do so with some trepidation? I mean Well I mean but you're you know, you're not to put too fine a point upon it, you're a white academic, a well known writer and reviewer.
1: Well, if you think of Jews as white.
0: <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> well
1: I don't know that I do or I couldn't feel this Kinship for the slaves.
0: Uh, Well, then, I mean, but still, to put you, I mean, did you not feel some trepidation? Yeah, I did. I did.
1: Certainly, certainly. I mean, I was worried what the, you know, black critics were going to say. Um, They've been mostly silent, uh, except for Charles Johnson, who wrote the the terrific novel, The Middle Passage. Mm -hmm. Um, he, He said some nice things about the book. And I, I was really worried about what the Jews were going to say. And the the response in Jewish publications has been enormously favorable. So, to the point where uh, a critic named Jonathan Kirsch, writing in the Jewish Journal, a national publication out of LA, at uh, Passover time said, This novel should replace the Haggadah as you discuss the story of freedom at your Passover table, which I couldn't get more
0: praise than that. Well, that's nice. But, as a writer going into the project, well uh, that's a different you you're you're looking at things from a different perception. so um one of the passages in here that's so harrowing is is the the middle passage, mm-hmm. this this portion set on the boat, and, mm-hmm. and that is really uh, of all the parts of this novel, mm-hmm. that is really the toughest part to read. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to talk about researching that and just you know immersing yourself in, you know, a kind of a marquee de Sade almost uh, level of horror.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it, it was hard for you to read. It was probably the most difficult thing I've ever had to write because, um, you know, a lot has been written about it, but a lot has not been written about it either. And, and I had to go up against uh, Charles Johnson's uh, sequence in the, his novel The Middle Passage and I wanted to be as good as that, but I don't want to be the same as that. Um, I guess in a strange way, as I I mentioned the Nazi concentration camps, in a strange way, what helped me to understand how to write that passage were accounts of, um, not just slave accounts, but uh, camp survivor accounts uh, about the measure of uh, cruelty and sadism that the uh, guards practiced on their prisoners um in the case of the middle passage the the irony is that um you know they, this, the this the slaves were chattel the slaves were supposed to be delivered intact to uh to the harbor in charleston um you don't practice the kind of cruelty and sadism that these uh, ship owners did and their go- and their crew did uh, without uh, a certain amount of trepidation about harming the goods you're trying to transport, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of people took advantage of the situation and uh, raped and murdered and uh, so they, so so what in an odd way, as I say, what sustained me were the accounts in, in the camps? They they give you one of the most horrifying accounts of what it was like to become someone else's chattel uh, for for evil purposes. So that that helped me to see
0: the middle passage in a way I hadn't seen before. Uh, m- one of the themes in this novel, obviously, is is freedom, mm-hmm. and I think this is uh, the novel. I think that for all that we see slavery dominating the actuality of the novel. spiritually, this is a novel that really speaks more directly to freedom than many novels that you know seek to celebrate freedom in, mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just so many takes on it and so many um, wonderful uh, sentences that you that you give us about freedom. Uh, I'd like you to just talk about immersing yourself in this horror of slavery. Yet having, you know, this kind of light of joy, in a sense, shine through, that's that's hard to pull off. I think you pull it off. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, as a writer, uh, there you're sitting writing about stuff, the concentration camps. How did you keep your mind on freedom?
1: Well, many of the slaves kept my mind on freedom, because that's what they were thinking of, and that's what they were plotting constantly, Uh, not the great percentage of them, but certainly the the sharp and clear-eyed percentage of them that could not imagine themselves spending their entire lives in this situation. So when uh, a plot by a runaway uh, appears, uh, I, I, I try
0: to dramatize that. As, as clearly and as sharply as I could. Now, the these portions that are set, you know, in the intergenerational uh, slave narrative, those are, you know, seem kind of told. the The voice in there is is pleasingly. Um, I'm not want to say non-abstract. That's not the right word. Um, it's a little. It, it's kind of in doubt. Where you know, as readers, it sounds like somebody's talking to us, but. Who could be, who could know all this? And and so I I think one of the great mysteries of the story, you do a good job of turning Mm -hmm. the voice of the narrative into a plot driver. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting technique. Was that something you saw from the very beginning or is that something that just evolved as you were telling the story?
1: No, I mean, I think if you see everything at the very beginning, you won't write the novel. (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, if you knew your life and all of it's, hearts every jot and tittle uh, when you were born would you want to go through it <laughs>
0: <laughs> probably not I guess that's the case so you you this was a journey for you as well oh yeah uh, you know one of the things I love is there are so many great visions that Nathaniel has and when he first experiences that slave auction mm-hmm. that whole scene is so vivid it mean, it just like jumps mm-hmm. off the page mm-hmm. and One of the things that's so interesting is that in that auction, at first, what we realize after a while is that all the slaves are calm, Mm -hmm. and all everybody else is acting like a frenzied madman. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such an interesting observation. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about you know looking into these slave auctions? Did you? I guess you had to do some research.
1: Yeah, well, you know, beginning with standing there in that in that. on that auction block in the barracks in Charleston. But, you know, you know I've wrote a, I wrote. I realize now that, you, as you ask this, I, I wrote a story uh, some years ago called uh, A Picnic on an Excursion to the Holocaust Museum. Some people who live in Washington have friends who have come to town and they want to take them to the Holocaust Museum and they have a picnic outside. Uh, it seems to me that the, the scene in this novel where they have a picnic right next to the auction barracks I guess now that I see it kind of mirrors that or grew out of the kernel of that short story I wrote that the world is uh, you know has these astonishing juxtapositions Uh, you know Auden has pointed out uh, you know in in, in his poem about uh, Bruegel's Icarus how in one part of the painting you see this mythological figure falling out of the sky an astonishing event, and a boat not all that far away from where Icarus falls, Daedalus falls in the water, uh, is uh, sailing off on, it, on its normal everyday work. Um, so you get these juxtapositions whereby people can live with the greatest horrors uh, and, and, and don't put too much of a mind on it. So nope. maybe, maybe somehow the novelist works that way, too, mirrors that somehow. I mean, you, maybe surgeons do, too. I mean, you know, a surgeon is cutting open someone's skull with a saw, <laughs> with a buzzsaw. Um, if the surgeon is not inured to that kind of work, he'll faint, vomit, throw the saw away. I mean, so, so you have to have a certain kind of practiced uh, skill even coldness to work with volatile material or else it's, it's going to do you in
0: now uh once we meet uh uh nathaniel's family in charleston mm-hmm. you have a lot of fun with the characters and and, and i i and with this the people are uh, you create a huge cast mm-hmm. of characters, mm-hmm. and I think you do a great job of managing the reader's understanding of these characters. Mm-hmm. We don't get lost. Mm-hmm. I nice. mean, for such a huge cast, there's no list of dramatis personae in yeah. the beginning. And I hate and those
1: because I, whether I need it or not, I'm always going. I'm always referring to it. <laughs> well, <laughs> distracts me from the
0: drama. Well, there's no distraction from the drama in this book, and there's no need for it. And I'm wondering how much of this stuff you had outside the book and how much you had inside the, the writing. I mean, did you have like a, uh, you know, an org chart for for the for the no. family and the slaves?
1: No, it was all in my head, which meant that I had to write it over and over and over again wow. to stave off confusion.
0: Uh, that sounds kind of scary because it, it's really, uh, for for me as a reader, it was very compelling. I mean, I just page turning mm-hmm. now w- when Nathaniel arrives mm-hmm. and comes to the to to the plantation yes he sails down from New York to sails. Charleston <laughs> he, he's he sees a woman uh, a slave who, mm-hmm. whom strikes him a- and finds himself transfixed mm-hmm. by, by this woman mm-hmm. so uh, that's a pivotal moment for yes. him yes talk about creating that pivotal Pivotal moment. Did you know that was going to happen? Was that part of your, you know, going into the story?
1: At a certain point, I knew he was going to uh, fall like a someone, you know, a beef cow hit over the head with a sledgehammer for this slave girl,
0: mm-hmm.
1: young woman. Um, I wasn't aware that I needed to write her side of the story, Mm -hmm. until after I finished Nathaniel's side of it, because uh, she has quite a different view of this uh, secretive affair
0: that they both fall into. Well, you know, that's that's an interesting uh, observation, given that we were just talking about these books about Japan, you mm-hmm. know, that seeing cultures from different sides, I, I, yes. I think that's a, a re- really effective way to to get us into the novel and also to keep the uh, the tension high, the plot mm-hmm. tension, because, the, you know, this novel really is kind of a compulsively readable novel. You really want to find out what the hell is going to happen, and I yeah, think yeah. to create that tension, having the two perceptions mm-hmm. um, really... Uh, ratchets that up to to uh, a quite a, a pleasurable level as a reader.
1: Well, it's a kind of dance, you know. Mm-hmm. You look at two figures dancing. You say, "Why is he dancing with her? Why is she dancing with him?" Or they might ask themselves, "Why am I dancing with this person?" It, it, you know, Willa Cather in, the, in her novel, The Professor's House, says, "The heart of another is like a dark forest. You can never know it." Um, and I, I maybe I took a dare. I tried to. To know their hearts, in in an odd way, uh, certainly easier to know Nathaniel's heart than 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 uh, Liza's heart, the slave woman's heart. But I tried.
0: Well, I think that uh, you you do a, a really marvelous job at at um, keeping things kind of balanced, so that when we encounter, as we get to know these hearts, it seems very authentic. Mm-hmm. Both, the, both the characters mm-hmm. their reactions to one another as, mm-hmm. we, as it's revealed to us mm-hmm. it's really pleasingly authentic mm-hmm. and, and I think that's one of the pleasures of reading this book is to, to find that you know, certain expectations are set up but you kind of undermine them all the way mm-hmm. in a way that's really enjoyable and I'm mm-hmm. wondering mm-hmm. if it was enjoyable for you as a writer to do that Oh
1: well, you know, even as you asked that question, I remember remembering how difficult it was to write it. So I, you know if writing well is a pleasure, then yes, it was enjoyable um but it's a you know it's the kind of pleasure you have uh, you know you you exercise and then you're happy that you finished exercising um while you're doing it, it doesn't seem so much like a pleasure, so you know it was very strenuous to
0: write um, and this was taking place over a number of years wasn't it yes and yeah. you were writing other things other novels right. well, you, know, you have to go
1: back I mean I don't know too much about how people compose long symphonies uh, I can't imagine they do it all in one fell swoop but maybe they do But if you go away from a piece of music that you're composing uh, even if you go back to a piece of music you're trying to sing you have a pitch pipe and you get that same pitch so I think it's really important for a writer to to go back to the same pitch of language and drama that they're working on time after time, day after day. It's a lot easier to do in a short story than it is in a novel. Um, as a, an editor I know, a great editor, and uh, a dear acquaintance of mine, once said when he rejected a novel of mine, too many moving parts. <laughs> <laughs> Not this novel. But, uh, you know, you have to control all of those. It's It's, it's a little bit like juggling. It's a little bit like living all of your life in the same instant. Um, (laughs) It ain't easy, but, you know, if if you're going to write,
0: I think, to try to write a novel,
1: there's no better thing.
0: You know, one of the things that I really liked about this novel was uh, Jonathan, uh, who we meet... The the cousin, Nathaniel's cousin. Nathaniel's cousin. Who
1: who is basically running this plantation.
0: Because when we... First meet him. He seems like a you know he's presented to us and seems like a fairly reasonable businessman. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> as the novel plays out, I, you know, that proves to not be exactly be the case, and, and it, it's again one of these um, enjoyable pieces of of reading experience for us. Mm-hmm. And it must have as a writer, I talk about you know again. He plays a pretty major part, and you, you, he ends up being integrated into different parts of the stories in different ways. And mm-hmm. I think that was really fascinating to kind of experience that as a as a reader. Well, I'm,
1: gl- I'm glad you had that response. I mean, that's how we learn things in life. We, we don't meet someone, and they, they have a little uh, legend, to go back to that CIA phrase. Mm-hmm. And they hand you a card that says, hi, my name is Rick, and I'm, uh, you know— newspaper man and I went to this school and that school and I have a family and thus and so and that's all you'll ever know about me (laughs) that's always the beginning you know the details are always the beginning and and people change in time people change over time and and I think one of the great things about writing a novel is that you can try to dramatize that kind of change and transformation of character over time Um, and we don't see him in his uh, childhood until maybe a third of the way through the novel, which I hope changes
0: the reader's perspective on him. Oh, yes. And it's a really nicely done, I thought. I thought that was, uh, you know, it, one of the things you do in this novel is move us back and forth through time, and, you know, it's not told in strict sequence, and, and I, I've... I just can only think that. You must have had like a hell of a spreadsheet or, you know, used Microsoft Project to figure all this stuff out. No, it was out, all but, in my head. You know, all in your head. All in my head. That's scary. <laughs> well, you know, it,
1: I, I pardon pardon the pompous comparison, but, you know, if you look, you know, Michel, Michelangelo supposedly looked at a piece of stone and saw everything he had to remove from it in order to allow the figure to come free. <laughs> so I, 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 I knew... I knew what I wanted to do, but that changed as, as I, the more that I wrote, mm-hmm. so I had to keep revising. It was a kind of dialectical process. I mean, revision is everything.
0: Now, was this much longer before, or did you, like, write a whole bunch of that stuff that got cut out, or or did you just, like, have this mass that just kept knitting and changing from within?
1: Uh, I think the latter, I mean, I mean, it's 500 pages in print now, and it was not
0: no it was not longer i didn't take out an awful lot do you when you write do you uh, have i mean are there like 400 versions of this on your com- hard drive somewhere um usually three or four and i mean in a way computers make it easy but
1: they also make it difficult because uh, you know you you you've got to you want to revise a sequence and so you go to the old file and then you revise it and then you have to remember how to file it in the new file or else you're going to lose it and, uh, it, it it's a, a, a cheerful complication, but I mean that's the great thing about the PC. Uh, it makes novel writing physically easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you wrote a novel without benefit of PC, you used a typewriter or you wrote in longhand and then you typed it, um, and it was enormous physical labor. Mm-hmm. And when you wanted to revise, you know, you had to. You want to change a sentence, that changes the paragraph, which changes the chapter. If you want to change the chapter or move a chapter in a different sequence, then you've got to revise everything, at least rewrite everything, uh, in 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 light of that uh, transportation of, of a sequence. So, in um, that way, PC com- composing is
0: is a little bit easier than the old way. Uh, but it's, uh, well, it's a two-sided uh, coin too, though, when you have. All those options you you have all those options and I mean, yeah, <clears throat> I can imagine that uh, perhaps Herman Melville might have had a much more difficult time composing Moby Dick on a PC. He might never finish the damn thing.
1: <laughs> I wonder about that. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I'll think about that. I just wrote a story with Melville. You did? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a based on an, an incident and a character out of Moby Dick. Uh, and I quote so much uh, from Moby Dick in it that I attribute authorship to him. So it's called PIP, A Story in Three Parts by Alan Schuess and Herman Melville. It's coming out in in the Michigan Quarterly Review next year.
0: Well, we'll look forward to that. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that I think is is, um, interesting about this book is you quote a lot of literature. You must have been reading a lot of Poe uh, and... uh, William Blake uh, so talk about uh, you know including in these kind of and there's also this lovely the Jersey Boys tale
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so there's like lots of little like short stories in mm-hmm. Phillips it's like uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, engravings in the side of a painting or something mm-hmm. all, like the little part in the in the uh, the, the Bruegel painting where somebody's saying in yeah. One way.
1: Yeah. And there and those also the the, the the side comments that appear from time to time. Right. Uh, which are which come from the the pen of the ultimate narrator. Mm. Um, and we I don't, don't want to talk about that. No, we don't much. want to talk about who that is. Yeah. Right. But it, it's not me. I'll no. <laughs> say that. It's not me. Um, so it's this, you know the book is complicated. I hope it's uh, more rewarding than it seems complicated.
0: No, it doesn't seem complicated. It's quite entertaining. But I'm curious uh, about uh, the Uh, Mm Poe. He seems to be really well. Nathaniel
1: Nathaniel reads. You know, he's got a. uh, He's been tutored by a very brilliant tutor in New York, and so he's been taught how to read poetry, and and that's what he does. No movies. (laughs) He has to read poetry.
0: Otherwise, he'd be talking about uh, Terminator movies, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, in, in
1: in modern times, he would, yeah.
0: now there's a lot of uh, it
1: shows how awkward and and uh, oddly immature he is
0: as a character. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the things that's interesting is all the agriculture technology, um, the rice paddy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not stuff that I ever read anywhere else or heard about. No, I had
1: to. I had to take a short course in rice horticulture. <laughs> uh, and historically, it's quite interesting in that, you know, these rice plantations uh, grew uh, much of the rice for the rest of the country and, you know, for the army, uh, not just for the civilians. And and the rice horticulture in South Carolina would not have been possible without the slaves. And I don't just mean without their labor, but they, you know, rice growing was an African uh, Agricultural uh, technique, and the slaves brought that technique with them, and so they um, not only worked at the plantation, they made the rice growing possible because of their knowledge of of, uh, of irrigation techniques for for rice. And I mean, you know, this particular grain required a certain kind of uh, uh, approach to it, and they knew, and they brought that, and they
0: passed that on to uh, to their owners, to their overseers. It's a really interesting uh, a, a piece of, of writing because it kind of uh, makes us think about, you know, agriculture as, for me at least, in, in my endless search for technology. It mm-hmm. r- made me really think about, you know, agriculture as a kind of technology mm-hmm. and how, mm-hmm. how, as you said, this technology came from a place that we did not think that supposedly was... Less civilized, but it meant was obviously actually much more civilized than uh, the people they brought it on yes. to. Yes, yes.
1: So this novel, filled with agriculture and human cruelty, and love, and despair, and and revenge, and betrayal, um, and um, gods and goddesses. Yeah, that's even Yahweh makes an appearance. Remember, mm-hmm. I mean, so it's you know in all of its heights and depths. I, I hope it's a full enough world uh, for, for readers to enjoy.
0: It's very, uh, and this is the other aspect of this kind of novel is it really partakes of the world building techniques that, you know, in many ways that Tolkien used or, uh, Mervyn Peake used for Gorman, the Gorman hmm. gas novels. And, uh, for for readers you know this creates a world i was i've never read much about the civil mm-hmm. war or the mm-hmm. south so mm-hmm. and the, this creates actually two sets of worlds you know the world of african slavery mm-hmm. coming over to the to the point where it comes it joins strands with the civil war world yes. so um for you living in the 21st century or in the, and the 20th since it spanned the two centuries mm-hmm. i think the creation of the novel yes, it did. Talk about creating these other worlds and these other uh, centuries. In particular, the aspects of the fantastic that you bring into the book, because the gods and goddesses are perfectly real. They're right there on the page. They're, you know, part of the the narrative as much as they might be, uh, again, in a less literary work. But I I think that you do a great job of using the fantastic in a manner that uh, works to your aim, which is to create the emotional tenor mm-hmm. of the world mm-hmm. well was, uh,
1: thank you I mean I would agree I would, would agree about that the gods and goddesses appear when they need to which is what gods and goddesses have done ever since the Iliad and before the Iliad so um you know they're part of us we're part of them and uh you know you, are they real or are they not I don't know uh, but they just appear and play their roles
0: they're real enough on the page, and that's what matters to readers. I mean, and they provide an interesting texture to the novel. They give the novel, a uh, uh, you know, a depth and a texture that's uh, enjoyable and and I think unexpected. And, and, you know, well, think
1: it's certainly. I never expected that I would write the scene where Yamaya, the West African river goddess, come to America to uh, look after the slaves. Her, the descendants of the of her people, would um, fly up into the heavens and try to flirt with Yahweh in order to get her way with him.
0: Uh, it, it's certainly it's an unexpected, but it's a very nice piece of writing. And uh, when you s- encounter that as a writer, I mean, what the hell did you ask yourself? What the hell am I doing?
1: No, but uh, I've never seen seen it in any other thing I've read. So I figure okay that's all right I I, I did something that I I wanted to read I mean you know somebody said this before but you know we write the books that no one else has written we write the books we want to read since no one else has written them we'll do it ourselves
0: and that's certainly true here nobody else I've never seen or even heard of a book that this would remotely resemble that's good (laughs) now uh the other aspect of this book, this is a book that took you a hell of a long time to yes, write. Yes, we
1: should say the title.
0: Again. Oh, yes, it's Song of Slaves in the Desert. Uh,
1: the, the title comes from a poem of uh, John Greenleaf Whittier's, Song of Slaves in the Desert, which is uh, basically a song that the poet says was passed on to him uh, from a, a journal of, of travels through Africa by a man named Richardson. Where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going, Ruby? They, the, the slaves sing to their god, and um, so it's a question. And I guess it's a question I tried to answer in this novel. Where are we going? Where are we going?
0: Now, over ten years or twelve years,
1: Senator? I uh, don't have an exact recollection of when I began <laughs> it.
0: I, I, I would think
1: the the kernel of it, I found in my mind, in in the early 1990s. Mm. And then I started doing the research and wrote, uh, made notes, copious notes, on and off over that decade. And I wrote a couple of other books in that time. So basically...
0: um, Almost 20 years, then. Yeah. uh,
1: But the last uh, five
0: years is when I really went into kind of jet propulsion mode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But as a writer... How did you know when you were finished? I mean, you go into jet propulsion mode for five years. Mm-hmm. Is there anything to tell you? I mean, what told you when you came to the end of the book we have now that, okay, this is, this is what I want to publish. I'm, I'm there.
1: When the narrator said the last thing that he was going to say, um, that's when I knew it was finished. Um, I I think I can read this last paragraph without giving too much away, all right? Mm -hmm. The heart, old instrument wonders, yes, and aches. The heart yearns, mourns, cries, but above all else, the heart hopes and longs to be free, even as the ground we tread on so unsteady where I grew up and perhaps where you live too trembles beneath our feet. Oddly enough, a faint tremor rattled Manhattan, Oh, the earth everywhere unstable. The moment I boarded the ship for Africa, my hand in my pocket, stone in my hand as I began my voyage eastward, hoping that I might find the last, or with luck, perhaps some of the first pieces of the truth of Eliza's life. Truth, ah, the truth, ever-changing, and yet remaining so steady, at least in the distance, that we follow it the way sailing ships follow certain stars to keep themselves on course in calm seas, and stormy. So when I knew when I wrote that, I was finished.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. His new novel is A Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. A great pleasure, Rick. Thank you. <laughs>